If you go ahead and take a seat. Uh, hello, my name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team here at St. Pete's, and it's a joy to be preaching this morning. It's a joy to be preaching from a strange passage. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, Heidi had just mentioned about our church values. If, if the fact that we have church values is new to you, great, we've got church values. Uh, we actually did a, a preaching series through those back in March as well. So if, if you're not into reading a small, beautiful little book that's free outside, uh, you can also listen when you're on the, on the bus or work, going to work. Uh, you can find that series. Um, I forget what we called that series. but uh, welcome, to welcome to our heart. Thank you, Phil. Uh, welcome to our heart. It's on our website or anywhere that you listen to our sermons online, for those of you who do. When I was growing up in England, uh, I was always fascinated by the London Underground. Now, if you didn't know, a good bit of the London Underground isn't actually underground. Uh, kind of like how you know none of the sky train is actually up in the sky. There's, there's some elevated parts, so I guess it's kind of in the air, but there's also lots of the sky train that's, that's underground. And there's lots of the underground that's above ground, too. And when I was growing up, I thought it was so cool. I wanted to watch as the trains went by. I wanted to look at the tracks and the switches and to see how it all worked. Actually, I, I kind of still do. And I remember walking over bridges in London close to where I was growing up, and, and there were a number of bridges near me that, that went over the tracks. And I always wanted to look down and see how it all worked. And maybe this is just in my memory because I was, I was young, but I remember the walls of the bridges being really tall. They, they were made of stone and of concrete, and I couldn't really see over the walls, but I wanted to see. And so I'd stand on my tiptoes and try and peer over the edge, and if it was too tall for that, I'd try and jump up to try and see over, get a glimpse. And every now and then, I would catch a glimpse. I could see the tracks and the switches below. And I could see the trains as they hurtled by. Today, we're taking a break from our uh, preaching series going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and don't worry, this is the last time for a while you're going to hear us preach about Ezekiel. Uh, we'll return to Luke next week, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, and instead, we're going to turn our attention today to the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is probably one of the most confusing and strange books of the whole Bible. And about 1,700 years ago, there was a Christian scholar who was working on a new translation of the Bible. His name was St. Jerome. And he once said, As for Ezekiel, who can fully understand or adequately explain it? That's encouraging, right? The beginning and the end of Ezekiel are involved in so great obscurity that they are not studied by the Hebrews until they are 30 years old. So, um, unfortunately, the average age of our church is like 29, so half of us now need to leave. That's okay. There's some weird stuff in Ezekiel. But as we look at, at the end of Ezekiel today, I want us to realize that Ezekiel, he's standing on his tiptoes. He's looking over the edge, trying to get a glimpse He's trying to catch a glimpse of what God was doing in his day. He's trying to catch a glimpse of what's coming and where they're going. And what he saw was something far greater than he could ever have dared to imagine. So as we explore our passage today, I want to consider the two things that Ezekiel glimpsed, the temple and the river. And then I want to turn and consider what this might mean for us. So the temple, the river, and us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible of your own, we actually have some in the lobby that you're welcome to go grab right now. 
if you don't have a Bible at home and you want one, please just take one home. That's our gift from us to you. Uh, you can also pull out your phones if you're a member of the 21st century and be illumined by the warm glow of the Word of God upon your face. And everything will also be on the screen behind me. So Ezekiel chapter 47, beginning in verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Now, Ezekiel has been going on a tour. The tour actually started uh, earlier in, in Ezekiel in chapter 40. And as we jump into this passage here in 47, we're kind of crashing on Ezekiel's tour. It's almost like we're at Ikea. And Ezekiel has been going through the maze of all the, the store displays and, and showrooms, seeing how everything is meant to get set up to look just right. And we're joining him right as he's finishing the tour, coming out of the children's section, and we've taken the shortcut to get to the restaurant. And now with our Swedish meatballs in hand, we're joining him as he descends the stairs into the market hall in the warehouse. <laughs> and for the record, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it means that there's some stuff in Ezekiel that we haven't quite grasped yet. There's some stuff, there's some context that we need to understand. Because Ezekiel saw something important as he was going through the showrooms. Standing on his tiptoes and peering over the ledge, he saw something that changed everything. And in chapter 43, Ezekiel explains in verse 2, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. And then jumping to verse 4, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Ezekiel saw the glory of God entering the temple. He caught a glimpse of God doing the most amazing, wonderful thing. God's presence was returning to be with his people. Now, to understand why that changes everything for Ezekiel, we need to understand a little bit more about what was happening in the world around him in his day. Because you see, for the people of Israel, the temple in Jerusalem had been the dwelling place for God. God had made a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people, and that he would dwell in their midst. You see, God wasn't just a deity who, who is far off in the sky and doesn't really interact with his people. He dwells among us. And the temple housed God's glory, his Shekinah glory. And his, his, it's his weighty, powerful presence that dwells here on earth. But Israel had started to follow other gods and idols, and they had stopped worshiping God altogether. Some of them were going off to, to the hills and the valleys to go worship other deities and ideas and idols, and, and God wasn't okay with that. Because you see, they were doing things that violated the covenant that God had made with them. And after a series of warnings over generations, God withdrew his presence from their midst. His Shekinah glory, it left the temple, and he handed the people over to the ways of the world. And then, in the year 597 BC, the kingdom of Babylon was inva invaded Jerusalem, and it took over the land. Uh, Babylon was led by this guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. You can call him King Neb for short. And King Neb destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and he forcibly removed the Jewish people from the land. 
And they were taken into Babylon, where they were made into exiles. They were taken away from everything they knew and loved. Their world had been ransacked and destroyed. And it felt like God had abandoned them. It felt like God wasn't with them anymore. God had once been so close to them. The temple in Jerusalem had been his dwelling place. And he had been their God and they had been his people. But God had left the building. And now, exiles in Babylon, far from home, it felt like God had left them too. And their circumstances made it feel like God had given up and left them on their own. Ezekiel was one of those exiles. He'd been taken to Babylon and seen his home destroyed. He was one of those people who felt like God had abandoned him. Which actually is sort of ironic because his name literally means God strengthened. Can you just imagine what that must have been like? Like your name means God strengthens and you feel like God's distant. Hey, Ezekiel, God, God strengthens. How's your day going? Ezekiel, can, can you give me a hand with this? God strengthens. You, you want to hang out tonight in Babylon? I would actually have often people would even say his name. Right? It's kind of got this sting to it. And for five years after King Neb took him from his home, Ezekiel's name hung heavily over him. But after five years feeling like God must have given up on him and his people, Ezekiel started to receive visions from God. He became a prophet among his people. And now, prophets in the Bible, they aren't fortune tellers. They were never gazing into a crystal ball trying to tell the future. Actually, the Bible has some strong words to say about people who do that. But the purpose of a prophet, it isn't to predict the future. It's to speak God's word directly to the people around them, the people in their own generation. And they would tell the people of Israel what God was thinking about the present situation and the historical circumstances of their own time. And so that's what Ezekiel did. He heard God speak to him, and he received visions from God. And he tried to convey them to the people so that they could know what God was up to. So they could know that even though it felt like God was far off, he hadn't left them. He was still speaking to them. He was still going to be their God. And he was going to see to it that they could still be his people. So we found Ezekiel mid-vision. He's, he's peeking over the ledge, just trying to catch a glimpse of what God's doing. And he sees that the temple that King Neb destroyed, he sees that it's been rebuilt. The temple that had been vacated, he sees that it's been filled once again with the glory and presence of God. Because you see, God wasn't done with his people. The people who felt cut off and distant, he had a plan for them, a hope and a future. Because God was going to return to the temple. He was going to bring his people home. He was going to dwell with them once again. And at the end of the day, in this strange book of Ezekiel, where you have to be over 30 to understand it, Ezekiel's ministry, it's all about hope. Hope that God was going to strengthen and rebuild and restore what had been broken. Ezekiel glimpsed, and he saw a temple, and it filled him with inexpressible hope and joy. But that's not all he saw. He also saw a river, 
So let's look at this river together. Uh, Look with me again in chapter 47, beginning in verse 1, we read, The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. Now, this isn't a test of your cardinal directions. The point isn't which way it's facing. The point is the water. Because Ezekiel sees water coming out from the temple. And the thing is, this is something different. This is something new. There hasn't been a stream coming out of the temple before. And as he follows the stream, he discovers that it's going to keep going. It's going to turn into a river. And there are three things that are unusual about this river. And I want to look at those three things quickly together. First, this water flows from the temple out into the world. Why is that unusual? Well, because until now, everything in Ezekiel's vision has always established a division between the holy and the profane. There's a division between the sacred things of God and just the normal things in life. And the reason for this separation and barrier is that there's It's been there in order to protect God's glory from contamination by sin. And there were these strict rules in place around the temple practices which said what could come in and what could go out. But water is now trickling down from the most holy and sacred place. The stream, it's bridging the gap. And God's presence is now in reach for everyone to access. So the first unusual thing is this. The water is flowing from the temple and is bridging the gap between God and the people. Second, the trickle of water becomes a river. As we keep reading in verse 3, we read, As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, which, for those of you who don't understand cubits, there's a measure of distance, that's about 470 meters, so I think like almost half a kilometer. So he measured off almost half a kilometer, and it led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Now, Every river starts from a small source, right? So what's so unusual about this river? Well, normally rivers have multiple sources. And when a stream's combined together, that's when the river becomes bigger and stronger and deeper. But this river only has one source. It only begins with this small trickle in the temple. Nothing adds to it. There's no other streams coming into this flow of water. There's only one source. And Ezekiel is asked, do you see this? Do you see this? Because as he follows the water, it keeps getting deeper and deeper and wider and wider and stronger. The profound presence of God that that spilt forth from this temple that's bridging the gap began so small and it seemed so insignificant. But as God's presence goes further, it becomes deeper and grows wider, and his presence becomes stronger. 
The second unusual thing about this river is that there's only one source to this mighty river. And it starts so small and humble that that one source became a great and mighty river. Third, this river brings life from the dead. As we keep reading in verse 6, it says, Then it led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, which is the Jordan Valley, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live where the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there. It makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. So there's going to be trees which line the river. And there's going to be fish living in the river. This sounds great, right? Uh, and for those of you who go fishing, actually, um, was it coho just opened up? Wild coho just opened up the other day. Which I tried to go catch one, and I did not succeed, um, which I think is a typical fishing experience. <laughs> but there's going to be enough fish for people to make a living fishing on the Dead Sea. And there's going to be enough fruit from the trees that people will be able to eat in the Jordan Valley. That doesn't sound all that unusual, does it? Right? I mean, that's why so much of human civilization is built around sources of water, so that we have a way to live, because we need water to live. So what's so unusual about this part of the river? It isn't that life will exist around the river, because that's just what rivers do. What's unusual is where the river is going, where this river is bringing life, because you see, this river is flowing to barren places. It says that the river will flow into the Arabah, into the Jordan Valley. That's a desert. The water from the temple is going to bring life to a desert. It's going to transform a desert into a place where life can thrive. And then, having transformed this desert into a bit of an oasis, it's going to flow into the Dead Sea, the saltiest body of water on the whole of the planet. It's too salty for anything to live in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. But the river is going to turn the salty water into fresh water, a place that once was too salty for life to dwell and exist or become a place where life can thrive. And in order for this river to bring life to a desert and to the Dead Sea, scholars point out that this water going from the temple to the Dead Sea via the Arabah has to cut against the topography of the land. It doesn't just flow downhill, it also has to flow uphill somehow. And this river will flow in an impossible way to reach places that have been hostile to life. But when the water from God's sanctuary comes to touch barren ground, an arid sea, it transforms it, and it brings an abundant life. A life fueled and sustained by the presence of God. And in verse 10, we read, fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engedi to Engleim, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt, which is a weird detail. But actually, they needed salt to preserve food and needed it for temple practices. So actually, even in preserving the salt marshes, that's a way that God is providing for his people for life to thrive. The saltiest water in the world becomes fresh, but there's still a provision for salt, which they need to live. 
Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. The third unusual thing about this river is that arid and barren places will become fresh and fertile. And life will well up from a place that is dead. Ezekiel's been peering over a ledge. And he's glimpsed a river and a temple. He's seen a temple filled with the presence of God. And he's realized that God is going to come and dwell with his people again. And he's seen a river, an impossible river that flows from God's temple, which brings the presence of God to his people and brings healing and transformation and life wherever it flows. And for exiles in Babylon, I mean, it would have sounded pretty weird to hear this and probably pretty hard to believe. But this vision was a vision of hope, saying that God was going to do something. And it was more than they could ever have dreamed or imagined. One day, they realized they would be with God again, back in the place they once called home. And God's presence would be rich and abundant, and life would flow and thrive all around them. And as Ezekiel stood on his tiptoes and peered over the edge, the Israelites had a day to hope for, a day that they could look forward to. It filled them with joy. And about 50 years after this vision, those exiles were brought home. They actually got to begin to experience the reality of this vision. So they returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. But they never saw the glory come back to that temple. They never saw the river flow and bring life. So, well, what gives? Why, why was there a vision of, of God's glory, Shekinah, coming back to the temple and this river flowing, and then they come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, and, and that's it. See, Ezekiel only ever saw glimpses of what was going to happen, and they only ever glimpses. He didn't realize that the humble start of that river would come in the form of a baby. His great and wild vision of glory and the temple and of the river, he didn't realize this, but it was always pointing towards a person. It was pointing towards the day when God would come and dwell with us in human form. Ezekiel's vision was all about Jesus. In the beginning of John's gospel, we're told, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's another translation that puts it that God moved into the neighborhood. He moved next door. In the person of Jesus, God's glory and presence came to dwell in our midst. As Jesus walked and talked, he brought life and healing to people whose lives felt arid and barren. And with just a word, with just a touch, people were healed. Demons would flee, and the dead would rise. When Jesus hung on the cross and breathed his last, we're told that the curtain in the temple, which divided the holy from the profane, the barrier that kept God's, God's holy presence from being contaminated by sin, we're told that barrier was torn in two from top to bottom. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
there's no longer a separation between us and God. Jesus has removed that barrier. Through Jesus, God has come to dwell with us. As I've been sitting in Ezekiel for the last little bit, I've been struck by something that Jesus once said. Uh, During his ministry in John chapter 7, Jesus says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Ezekiel's vision of hope, of God's presence dwelling with the people once again, it wasn't only for exiles. The temple and the river, God's life-giving presence in our midst, this is a vision for us, too. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That impossible river that flows from the presence of God, which starts with just a little trickle, but in time builds to a mighty torrent, which flows uphill and down to reach arid and barren places and brings vibrant and incredible life. Jesus says that if we believe in him, the Holy Spirit can be that river in us a river of living water flowing from in you and in me. And I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that. I want that river of living water flowing up from within me. I want to drink from that river. I want to soak in that stream. I want to soak in the presence of God. A few months ago, I was feeling really spiritually dry. And sometimes that just happens. Um, and there are seasons where that happens for people in life. Um, and I've experienced a couple of curveballs in the past year too, but I was feeling weary. And in some ways, I still do feel weary. But a few months ago, someone shared a sermon with me. It's by a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. I mentioned Bernard a few weeks ago, if you were here. Uh, Bernard was a Christian leader who lived about a 1,000 years ago. And in this sermon, he was talking about the ways that the Holy Spirit can come and fill us up. And he says something that really struck me. He said, If then you are wise, you will show yourself rather as a reservoir than as a canal. A canal spreads abroad water as it receives it, and a reservoir waits until it is filled before overflowing, and thus without loss to itself communicates its superabundant water. If you are wise... You will be a reservoir, not a canal. You will allow Jesus to fill you up, to saturate you so that you overflow. You won't just receive from Jesus and let it go straight through you. You'll soak in him. So that out of the overflow of the superabundance of Jesus' presence in your life, you can be his witness in the world, so that you can be his person, his follower in this world. He goes on to say, in the church at the present day, we have many canals, but few reservoirs. In the church of a thousand years ago, we have too many canals and few reservoirs. I don't think that's changed very much in a thousand years. I want it to change. I want it to change for this church. 
I don't want us to be canals of Jesus' presence. I want us to be reservoirs of his presence. I want me to be a reservoir of his presence, not just a canal. I want his presence to be so rich and thick in this place and in our lives, in my life, that no matter what comes, he's still there. And I feel his presence. And out of the abundance of his presence in my life, I can follow him. I can point to him and say, he is good. And his river of life is still flowing. And there's life abundant in this place. Friends, you and I aren't rivers. Rivers of living water can well up from within us, but, but we aren't the rivers ourselves. God is. And we get to soak in him. We get to drink from him. Bernard is saying we're meant to drink we ourselves are meant to drink from him. We're meant to soak in his presence. I don't know about you, but I, I want that. I want my heart and my soul to be richly saturated and soaked in his presence. And I want a, a flowing river of living water to be all around me. I want to live and dwell in the river of God. That Ezekiel said is too deep and too wide to cross. And I want to know the vibrancy of life that comes from that mighty and impossible river. Ezekiel had to peer over a ledge to try and catch a glimpse. And he, he glimpsed something amazing. He saw something that gave him hope and joy. But friends, we don't need to stand on our tiptoes to see this. We don't need to try and just catch a glimpse. Instead, we can come and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because in Jesus, the invitation is simply for us to come and drink. Come to the water if you are thirsty. Come to Jesus. Come to his river, which flows from the cross. All it takes is to say, Jesus, I'm thirsty and I need a drink. Jesus, I need you. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment of silence. We just sit. If you're comfortable doing it, I invite you just to open up your hands. And you can close your eyes. Let's just wait for a moment and ask to drink from Jesus. anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus, may we dwell in your river. May our lives be saturated with you. May you fill us today.
Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us even now. Where there are dry and barren places in our lives and in our hearts, would you come and bring life? Where there's feelings of being far from you, would you please come and draw close? And may we feel your touch. May we see you. May we know you. May you make us into your reservoirs. May your life be rich and abundant in this place and in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit. For there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fail. God will help her at break of day. May we come and rest in you. In Jesus' name.